So last week we talked about my friends, my future, and we're continuing in what's, I guess, a little bit of a, a mini-series for the next few Sundays on this theme, my friends, my future. And today the sermon is two to the power of one. Two to the power of one. We're gonna talk about power and superpowers on this Sunday in Eastertide, which happens to be Mother's Day. So let's start with moms. Uh, you know, we do live in an age, in an era, in popular culture and everywhere else where everybody wants to know about superpowers. We're into superpowers. We pay lots of money to see movies in which people have superpowers because that's a great fantasy for us to have. And, and then the question in those movies and then among various people, you may have your friends ask you this, what's your superpower? You know, if you don't have a superpower, you're not worth much. So what is your superpower? And the answer for some of us in our worshiping group today and watching online would be, I'm a mom. That's my superpower. I'm a mom. You know, mothers are amazing, have amazing powers and capabilities. Uh, they, a mother can sound like uh, an angelic member of the celestial choir. Johnny, wouldn't we love to have them in the choir singing Brahms lullaby, but then sound uh, louder than a drill sergeant calling children to get dressed or come to supper, or you definitely don't want to sit near some moms at their kids' ball games. They can get pretty loud, moms can sometimes. Um, you know, Napoleon famously said, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And there's some truth in that proverb, isn't there? Moms are amazing, but let me ask you this, and mothers, you may be able to answer this first. What's the quickest way for a mom to get attention from her children? And the obvious answer is to sit down and act like you're going to be comfortable for a few minutes. All of a sudden, children need something when that moment happens. What's your superpower? I'm a mom. God, this is true now, God empowers women really miraculously to push through the challenges and the pains of childbirth, and then through the pains and challenges of child rearing and being a mom all throughout life. You're always a mom. Once a mom, always a mom, right? In the church, unless you're defrocked, you know, once an elder, always an elder. Once a mom, always a mom. But we have to acknowledge that this is a stormy season and century for mothers and specifically for Christian mothers. This age increasingly does not value the calling and, and most definitely a, a biblical understanding of the calling of motherhood. In fact, this culture in which we live and this age in which we live seems to be at odds with most or all Christian and biblical values that Christian mothers are called upon to instill in their children. So we're fighting a serious war when we talk about the church as ultimately kind of the mother of believers and then individual Christian mothers in this age in which 
the agenda seems to be to deconstruct and tear down everything that has held up and supported moms uh, being Christian, you know, parents and leaders and teachers. And by the way, I, I was concerned with, I talked with the staff a little bit about, I'm not sure we really should be live streaming this particular broadcast or, or leaving it up online because I may be accused of, and this church may be accused of hate speech because, you know, nowadays in 2022, we're not really, I think, supposed to talk about mothers anymore. We talk about pregnant people. We talk about pregnant people, not, not pregnant mothers. And and uh, I, I'm still a little bit baffled by the pregnant man emoji. I know some of y'all have been using the pregnant man emoji. I am a pastor. I deal with lots of people in lots of walks of life. And I do occasionally, by God's grace, have prophetic vision of things. But as yet, God has never shown me in person nor in a prophetic vision a pregnant man yet. But maybe some of y'all have met a pregnant man. I'd like to speak with you and pray with you after the service if you have. Uh, what is your superpower? I'm a mom. Uh, the truth is, in the face of all these cultural and political challenges we face, there are, and forever will be, few things more powerful on earth than a mother's love, a mother's tears, and a mother's prayers. God, our Father in heaven, on his throne, and the Bible attested this over and over again, honors the prayers of faithful mothers, and specifically all women and men actually, who fear, who lovingly revere the Lord and are infinitely more concerned about what God says and what God thinks than what people think and political leaders think. So let's pull this out a little bit from moms, uh, but still with reverence to moms. What is your superpower? What's your superpower? Well, here, I'm going to give you an answer. This is a, an awesome answer. I am a friend of Christian mothers. Would you repeat that with me? What's your superpower? I am a friend of Christian mothers. That is our, our calling for all of us, men and women, young and old, and in the church to be friends of Christian mothers. That's our calling as a church together to support Christian mothers and especially in these days. So back to our sermon today in the line of my friends, my future, because who your friends are, you show me your friends, I'll tell you your future, not only on this earth, but ultimately uh, eternal destination too. So also playing off of that to to the power of one. And we're going to turn to a couple main passages of Scripture today. We're going to open with Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. And then a little bit later, we will be turning to Exodus chapter 1, picking up at verse 15. Hear now God's word. Hear now God's word from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Picking up at verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him 
who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will, or in other words, will definitely withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So you can follow along with the sermon notes, and these are pretty obvious. The first couple from Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Number one, two, first of all, two are better than one. Now, let's get a little particular on this. Let's understand that the scripture is speaking of two who are faithful together. Remember our sermon last week, and if you missed last week's sermon, and parents, definitely, if you missed last week's sermon, you want to go back and listen to it, or even if you heard it, review it again on some of our key messages from the scripture last week about, you know, my friends, my future. And just, just a few of the verses, remember Proverbs 12, 26, the righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. And then kind of the, the, the textus classicus of the My Friends, My Future, Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. That's the good news. The bad news, but the companion of fools will, it's a biblical promise, will suffer harm. Proverbs 18, 24. You don't want to try to have too many so-called friends. A lot of people try to hang on to all kinds of friends. You get yourself into trouble. As 18, 24 opens, a man of many companions comes to ruin. I'm just friends with all kinds of people. Everybody I grew up with. Everybody I was in a fraternity with. Everybody I ever hung out with. Everybody I was in a choir with. No, no, no. Um, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend. We're talking about really close particular friends here. And here, ultimately, the prophecy, of course, about Jesus. We introduced that last week. We'll come back to it. But there is a friend who sticks closer even than a brother. And, of course, from Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, one way to figure out who the real kind of friends that you need to have are, the two or three key friends in your life, they need to be people who are involved in church and go to church and worship and are involved in praying with you and helping you spiritually throughout the week. So Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But with that understood on the selection of who the two need to be, I mean, the, the one you need to be combining with, uh, two are better than one. The sum is greater than its parts. Ecclesiastes here, Solomon, uh, God's word through Solomon and Ecclesiastes, or the preacher, the koalette, is, is teaching us here that uh, one of the areas of chabel, of vanity, of emptiness, is to live your life where you don't have a real faith partner, okay? And so it's talking about what, what good does it do, and you're ultimately going to fail, but even if you do succeed for a time, what good is it? It's emptiness if you don't have a real faith partner to share it with. So, so God is talking about that in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, 
Um, and, and then we go into the positive side, the calling to be in partnership with another person of faith. Two are better than one. So here's some things that the scripture is teaching us. In verse 9, there's productivity and profit in faith partnership. The two have a good reward. They have return for their labor. And let me make this clear. In all these passages here that we go through, the examples, we've got the surface level message and then the deeper level message. So we're not just talking about immediate human success. We're talking about what the Bible accords or accounts as success or profit, which is ultimately glorifying and pleasing God. That's where this is headed. Okay. So there's support and help in times of need as well. Verse 10, if one falls, the other picks up his companion. And to repeat, yes, literally it is true that if you're walking along with somebody and physically they fall, you need somebody to help get up, right? It, it sometimes helps. But this is not just talking about physical walking and falling. This is talking about a spiritual life. Remember, the Bible refers to walking as the way of life that we live, okay? So what this is talking about is this. We need to have someone in our lives to whom we are openly, transparently, accountable spiritually because spiritually all of us are sinners and there will be times when you or when I stumble we need to have a brother or sister to whom we can confess and ask for encouragement exhortation prayer and support that that's what verse 10 is ultimately talking about openness accountability affection the common faith Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's also comfort and sustaining. The two will keep each other warm. And again, think not just surface level here. Think about spiritual warmth and support and sustenance for one another. Especially in times we all go through dry seasons and cool or even cold seasons spiritually. This is what this is talking about, verse 11. Um, there's also safety and security, the, the first part of verse 12, having each other's back. You want to look, you cannot cover your back. You need somebody to cover your back. And again, not just physically and obviously, but also spiritually. Though one person might prevail against another person, it kind of depends on who that other person is, right? And if that other person is really mean and bad and evil, or even we're talking about, let's say, Satan, <laughs> you're going to need a little bit of help here. So the two do a lot better in a spiritual warfare fight than one. Okay. Uh, to this point, we're all on this twosome emphasis. And Philip Ryken, in his commentary on this, sums this up as this. The buddy system is not just for school field trips or for deep sea diving. The buddy system is God's plan for how you live your life as a Christian and how you serve as a Christian. That's what this is saying. We're supposed to continue in the buddy system when we get out of fourth grade. Okay, do you hear what I'm saying? Or when we get out of youth group on the mission trip. Dean, when we get, even teach the buddy system, definitely on the youth trip, 
but we're supposed to do this all through our life. Okay, whether we're 18 or 16 or 86, I don't care. In other words, we all need Christian friends. I mean, close, key Christian friends for emotional and spiritual support, guidance, to bear one another's burdens together. So let me ask you this. Are you living by God's plan? Do you have that one or two or three key people, maybe just one person, that you will tell whatever, whenever needs to be told and go to the Lord in prayer, in repentance, in support, in exhortation, and vice versa? So we move through all that, and that's, of course, the first point. Two are infinitely better than one, okay? But then we get to the, the final part of verse 12, and there's this abrupt, where did this come from? We've been talking about two over and over again, right? And all of a sudden we've got three. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Did y'all catch that? It was not, not, I mean, not twofold cord, threefold. What are we talking about? Did we suddenly expand out to three friends? Well, I guess you could read it that way. But what seems to clearly be the message of scripture here is all of a sudden we're talking about how God by his spirit binds together true friends in the Lord. And now you're talking about real exponential power and I'm talking about heavenly exponential power. When you have, give me two people who are committed to the Lord and are called together by the Lord and there is no end to the world changing and gospel transformation that can happen in a household in a community, in a church, in a nation. That's, that's what God is saying. So the threefold cord is not quickly broken. This is, of course, we're now at our second point, two to the power of one, which is our sermon title for today. Two to the power of one. Now, the strength of the three-ply cord was proverbial in the ancient world, okay? But so we're picking up on that proverbial language, but here from a faith standpoint, we're talking about God tying the knot in the midst of the knot, which is the gospel message of God coming to us in his grace and ultimately in the incarnation of Jesus Christ as the ultimate friend for us. Now we go to our third point. Two, to the power of one in action. Shifra and Puah. You really need to know those names, and I'm going to read you the passage. So now we're at the third segment of our sermon for today, and we're going to develop this a little bit more because this is really important stuff. Okay, listen to Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. The, the Hebrew people, the descendants of, of Jacob, of Israel, are now slaves in Egypt, you know, there's been a dynasty change in Egypt, the, the most Im important and powerful empire on the world. There's been a dynasty change. Uh, the new Pharaoh or Pharaohs do not recognize, do not remember Joseph. And the Hebrews are in slavery. Round one of cracking down on these threatening Hebrews is to uh, deny them straw and make their work in brick making harder. That's round one. We're now going to be reading about round two, which is late-term abortion of the male Hebrew children. Round three is going to be, okay, if that didn't work, we'll get to this. There's this one little verse that then leads to the Moses story. Throw them in the river. Throw them in the water. 
let them be drowned or killed in the water. I'm not telling you you have to cut their necks off. You don't have to have blood on your hands, Pharaoh says, but you're going to have to throw them in the river. That's where he's going to go next. But here in the middle of this trio of, you know, increasingly brutal oppression from the empire, we get uh, picking up at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on... This is really like a stone or potter's wheel, birth stool. Uh, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, because they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever indeed. Once again, we come to an amazing story of faith partnership of these two women, so often forgotten. I know a lot of people who know the Bible pretty well, but they virtually never talk about Shifra and Pua. Let me remind you, you need to know the story of Shifra and Pua. When people ask me about faith-based, biblically-based civil disobedience, this is one of the three main passages that I refer to and teach off of. This is Shifra and Pua's story. You need to know these women. Now, now notice, this is one of the things I want you to understand. The way this story goes down, the most powerful man in the world at this moment is Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And let me ask you this, what is his name? And you're going to say, I don't know his name. The Bible doesn't tell me his name, Pastor Martin. Can history tell us his name? And the answer is no. There is no definitive answer on which Pharaoh this is. So you've got this irony here. I mean, who would ever thought that we're going to know Shifra and Pua, these two midwives, and not know the name of the most powerful man on earth? That's the way history goes down under the presence of God. I don't care who the president is. I don't care who the king is. I don't care who the emperor is. God knows and remembers the name of those who are his own, those who fear him. That's the basic message of this story. And it's the basic message of God is the author of life over death and death dealing. And so this is one of the, notice, these are two friends who are friends to mothers. And let's see how this story happens. Well, you, you have to read between the lines, but there are some clear um, line reading and in between the line reading here going on. It looks like, okay, these two women, Shifra and Pua, are the head nurses or head midwives over an entire group. That's the way the Egyptians arranged things. There would be like head people over skilled artisan groups over various, you know, groups of workers. And so it looks like Pua and Shifra are the head midwives. 
Because a lot of times people read this scripture and they're like, how could there just be two midwives? Well, they're, they're, they're head ones. They're coordinating the whole operation. Secondly, we can clearly infer from the end of this story in verse 21 that one of the reasons these women are able to be so important in their you know, mid-level job is that uh, they either aren't married at all, or even if they are married, they are not able to have children themselves. They're serving as midwives because the end of this story is going to end up, they get families, okay? They get families, they get households. They don't have it at the beginning of the story. Uh, we don't know whether they're able to have their own children, whether they adopt, where they marry into a situation where they become the stepmothers, but they both end up having families, which is an awesome Mother's Day story, right? So uh, these two women, they, they have beautiful Hebrew names that mean um, beauty and harmony, that's shifra, and um, splendid or radiance. You know, it's, it's related to the word for the, the city, Joppa, uh, is that, that's Pua. But anyway, they've got beautiful names. I don't understand why some of you have not named your children Shifra and Pua, but let me just commend those to you moms if you got any more children on the way. Shifra and Pua, your child would stand out for sure. And they're great names, in the Hebrew at least. Um, so what is Pharaoh ordering here? Well, this is where we really have to read between the lines. You'll notice, just, just think with me here. The Pharaoh doesn't say, fine, okay, forget your jokes or whatever you're trying to do to me. I don't care if you arrive late. I don't care if the baby's a week old, cut his head off and kill him. You notice the Pharaoh doesn't do this. Apparently this Pharaoh is operating under some kind of boundaries of the Egyptian religious system and politics. And so he never asked for an outright bloodletting murder. Even when he gets to DEFCON 2, you know, and says, throw the babies in, in the water, you notice he doesn't say snap their necks or cut their heads off. He just wants them to drown because people are worried about having blood on their hands. In the Egyptian religious system, Num, the god of fertility, is at work until a baby's born. And this Abnaim uh, term that, that is used in this Exodus chapter 1, where it's like you go and you look at the child, you know, that's the same term. It's used one other time in the Bible. It's over in uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 3, when he's talking about the potter's wheel. And the way Noom, the creator God, was viewed as being a kind of a potter making children, Okay. And until a child is born under this system, the child is not considered yet a full human being, and you can kill him. And we know profuse Egyptian literature, uh, the Egyptians used abortifacians, okay? And they did late-term abortions. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I mean, this is like, you know, 4,000 years ago, but this, this is what we're dealing with here. So it's okay to do late-term abortions, but you don't kill the child once he's out of the womb. So what appears to be happening is these Shifra and Pua as the coordinators of the other midwives, they do late-term fetal examinations and determine whether the child is male or female. Because again, notice Pharaoh doesn't go back and say, well, whatever, hey, I don't like your joking, but go back and kill all these babies. I don't care if they're a month old. He does not say that. He's trying to get them late-term aborted after the uh, gender or sex can clearly be determined. And again, there is um, Egyptian literature to this. I wanna shout out to Scott Morshauser who, who wrote a critical note in the winter 2003 Journal of Biblical Literature. It's the first time I ever saw this recently when I was looking back at this passage. This seems to give the answer to what's going on here. 
So what happens with this situation? Here's the key verse, and I want to highlight this for you. In the Bible, after the fall, God says to the woman, I'm going to put enmity between you and your seed and the serpent and his seed. So we've got a struggle between the serpent and God's plan for our salvation. And, and, and he, he promises, he says, look, the, the serpent's seed is going to crush the heel of your seed, but he, your seed, will crush the serpent's head. In other words, Jesus, this is talking about Jesus ultimately, will prevail even though he's killed. Okay? Jesus will crush the kingdom of the serpent. Move forward. We need the, the king and the savior of the world to come through this line of the Hebrews. What happens, obviously God can do whatever he wants to, whatever miracle he wants to, but at the earthly level, what happens if all the Hebrew males get wiped out? If the Hebrew race gets wiped out? That means the line of Judah gets wiped out. Do we have a Messiah coming? The answer is no. At least at an earthly level, everything is on the line at this point with these midwives. This is one of the key turning points in all of human history. And notice what happens. Verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the male children live. I mean, that's one of the great gospel turning points in all history. Shout out to the friend of mothers. Shout out to Shifra and Pua and to every other woman, and for that matter, man since then, who does not fear the authorities, but works for life in the face of death dealing. And then, of course, we get the midwives reporting back to Pharaoh, look, hey, what can we do? The Hebrew women are a lot healthier and stronger than the Egyptian women. And he apparently has his hands tied. So he doesn't know what to do with this situation. And playing off of that humor, then, we get the blessing. Happy Mother's Day. God gives to these women because they feared the Lord and revered the Lord instead of the authority of man and what people think. Because of that, God gives them families. Isn't that an awesome Mother's Day present? Amen? That's the good news. The power of two to the power of one indeed. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. My beloved, we are called this day and in this season to support life and mothers and God's plan. May it be so that you and I believe, fear, and follow the Lord, even in a season when the world's authorities are against God, his children, and his plan. Let me tell you who's going to win and who gives the blessings at the end of the story. It's God. Go with him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.